You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. So me and the bees, we go back about 10, 11 years. It was a summer gig in Florida after Africanized bees had already been a thing for a while and colony collapse disorder had just hit. I was working with the Florida Department of Agriculture and we had two jobs. Keep an eye on the Africanized bee situation and see if we could figure anything out about this whole colony collapse thing. There was a lot to do. We had test hives that we had to take care of, so we got in the bee suits The bee lab was about half science nerds who had learned how to do beekeeping, and half professional beekeepers who'd learned how to use a microscope. It was a really fun group, and I learned a lot from just drowning in bee nerds and beekeepers. A lot of what we did was checking bees sampled from commercial hives. So here's the deal. If you're up on the bee news, you know that most of the U.S.'s commercial beehives go out to California around February to do pollination for almonds. Not as well known is that a lot of these hives, before they go to California, spend the winter in Florida. It's warm, and we've got crops that need pollination in the winter when nobody else does. We've got strawberries, blueberries, and oranges, and those are all pretty standard winter gigas for beekeepers. Now here's where it gets hinky. What else do we have in Florida? Africanized bees! And when you take half the nation's beehives or so and put them in a blender with Africanized genetics, it gets kind of wild kind of fast. Like all of us mortals, bee queens have a lifespan, and when it's over, the hive will replace her with one of her daughters. Normally, not a problem, unless you have Africanized bees in the area, and the new queen mated with some drones from a wild colony with Africanized genetics, and she's going to make some Africanized worker bees. Now, if you're a beekeeper, and you've got a hive that's gotten real assertive all of a sudden, you're going to notice. So professional beekeepers tend to notice hives with Africanized queens and requeen them pretty quickly. Now, a quick note... Africanized bees aren't as scary as people think. They're just kind of defensive because they're from a place that has elephants and honey badgers and they want to live. On the other hand, European honeybees had a pretty chill life, you know, free from predators, and have been selectively bred for thousands of years to be peaceful. Africanized honeybees also have a lot better resistance to heat and some diseases that demolish pure European hives, which is why folks were trying to hybridize them with European bees to start with. A lot of beekeepers in South America are actually really excited about Africanized bees, where they call them abejas bravas, or brave bees. And folks in Africa do beekeeping with 100% local African honeybees as a good farm sideline. But here in the U.S., where the agriculture is built around European farm practices, we're really used to our bees being Euro-style wimpy bees. That's what we've built our farmways and our lifestyles around, so when Africanized bees show up, we panic. And the California Department of Food and Agriculture panics. Hi, CDFA, love you guys! Remember how most of the hives overwintering in Florida's next stop is California? Fun fact, a lot of new agricultural diseases and pests and problems show up in Florida first, because we're just dangling out there in the Caribbean. And then, because the United States' two big centers of fruit and veggie growing are Florida and California. There's a lot of people and equipment traveling between farm country in those two states. So a lot of things that first show up in Florida start to show up in California a couple years later. Fire ants, Pierce's disease... Citrus greening, knock on wood. The list goes on. California really wants to make sure that whatever insanity is happening in Florida stays there. Or at least, by the time it makes it to California, Florida's already figured out how to fix it. And Africanized bees are on the list. So Florida had a deal with California that we're going to be really rigorous about making sure that beehives weren't getting Africanized during their time in Florida. 
So Florida, like most major beekeeping states, already does state hive inspections because they found out through some rough experiences that the only way to keep all the beekeepers in the state from getting wiped out by diseases like foul brood is regular health inspections and destroy infected colonies. So we're already doing these inspections, we just tacked Africanized bees onto the list of things we're already looking for. Every once in a while, one of the hive inspectors would stop by to drop off samples. And most of these guys were retired beekeepers, because they already know how to open up a hive without getting lit up, and they also already know the beekeepers they're inspecting. Which really smooths the inspection process along socially. I remember one of these guys in particular was awesome. He was old school, and had this really deep gravelly voice, like he'd inhaled too many bees and now it was permanent. As an inspector, it was his job to drive all over the state and shoot the breeze with everybody while you're picking through hives. So the other reason to stop by the lab is it's not just the central clearinghouse for samples and science, it's the central clearinghouse for gossip. At one point, this guy and the beekeeper who ran the lab were talking about weird stuff happening in the housing market. The hive inspector's telling the beekeeper who runs the lab, Hey, remember how everybody started doing those funky mortgages where you barely got to pay anything for the first five years? They started buying these really big houses, and I was thinking, hmm, this is going to get weird in about five years, and that was about five years ago? As this inspector's blasting around Florida, his beekeepers were starting to talk about neighbors getting pinched by mortgages, for sale signs cropping up faster than usual, whispers of the F-word, foreclosure. It was 2007. Moral of the story, agricultural inspectors go everywhere. They talk to everybody, and they know things. The beekeeper running the lab was funny, too. He was still running a lot of his family beekeeping operation, at least the Florida part. One time he was home doing some work on his own hives, and he had to run out to the 7-Eleven to pick up something. So he comes straight from the hives, and he still had some bees crawling around on him, and a lady in the 7-Eleven saw this and started freaking out. Now, what she didn't realize was not only were these his own personal tame bees, but... If you've just been in a hive and then you drive down the road and there's still bees on you, it's because they're nurse bees. Honeybees have this division of labor where only the oldest bees actually go out and forage, and they're the only ones who can fly and sting. The younger adults just stay in the hive 24-7, feed the kids, do maintenance, all that. They're called nurse bees, and they can't sting or fly yet, which is why they're still walking around on Dave instead of having flown back home. They're kind of sweet and innocent. But Dave isn't, so Dave got the bees to walk onto his finger and started chasing the lady around with them inside the 7-Eleven. <laughs> Sometimes I do miss Florida. So among the many rich experiences from working in bee science, one I'll never forget is running off to the giant on-site research library to pick up some info on bees and running into another entomologist there who also does bugs and native pollinators. We talked for a little while, and among the many things he said boiled down to, Oh, you're in the honeybee lab. Honeybees are seriously overrated. And I felt like somebody had just slapped the baby Jesus. And then I worked in agriculture for another 10 years, and I learned something that I will now pass on to you, gentle listeners. I love me some honeybees, but they are seriously overrated. Globally, there's not actually that much food that depends on pollination from bees. Most grains and pulses self-pollinate and have a flower that's not even built to let bees in, or they just pollinate by wind. Corn and tree nuts, except for almonds, all just pollinate by wind as well. Farmers plant root crops like potatoes, sweet potatoes, cassava, and taro by planting roots. Flowers and seeds aren't a part of their crop cycle at all, so there's little use for pollinators. There may not be a lot of variety in a diet made up of starches, nuts, and legumes, but they do make up the bulk of the food that humans actually consume, and are the keystone of food security. 
no pollinators involved. The crops that do need pollinators are pretty limited. Absolute musts are crops in the squash and melon family, berries, temperate tree fruits like apples, cherries, and peaches, almonds, which are actually in the cherry and peach family. Fruits in the nightshade family like tomatoes, peppers, and eggplants definitely do better with pollination, but it's not a 100% deal breaker. And here's the other thing. Honeybees are kind of mediocre at pollinating every single one of those crops we just named. It's time to talk alternative bees! For every crop that actually needs pollination, there is at least one group of bees that's better at it than honeybees. It's not that honeybees are bad, they're just okay. Even though they occupy a really key place in the Western imagination as an example of being busy, here's the thing. If you actually look inside a hive, like I did for months, doing lab stuff right next to the Bee Lab's see-through demo hive, you'll notice a lot of bees in there are just chilling. They're not grooming, they're not eating, they're not interacting with other bees, they're just hanging out. Honeybees spend so much time sitting around the hive doing nothing. We keep trying to use them as a symbol of the Protestant work ethic, but they're kind of terrible at it. If the weather's cool or cloudy, they don't even bother foraging, they just stay inside. And no judgments. Millions of years of evolution says that's what works best for their survival. So that's what they should do. But it is a data point to keep in mind if you're looking to build a food system and you want to make a really good way to get all of your crop pollinated in any weather. There's also more to being a good pollinator than just hours on the clock. For a lot of crops like blueberries and tomatoes, a bug just crawling around in the flower the way a honeybee does really doesn't get the job done. You need a bumblebee. They're big and super fuzzy, so they just catch and spread around a lot more pollen. They also do this thing where they go on the flower to shake the pollen loose and make it easier for the bumblebee to pick it up. Some flowers actually don't get pollinated any other way. In the bee biz, they call it buzz pollination. And if you'll notice, for situations where you need to pollinate crops but you can't use bees for some reason, the tools they sell to do it aren't a fuzzy stick. They are vibrators for plants. The flowers need a good shake to let that pollen out. This group includes tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, blueberries, and cranberries. All in that group where honeybees don't do them any good, gotta use bumblebees. The food system is still catching up to this reality. You can get bumblebee colonies pretty easily, and you can even just have habitat for native bumblebees to live in. But a lot of farms still use honeybees for these crops that need bumblebees because old habits die hard. In a lot of cases, farms are convinced that honeybees work because they used honeybees and they got good yields. When that happens, it's often a case of native bumblebees picking up the slack. And with blueberries, there's also an extra wrinkle. Blueberry flowers are shaped like a long bell, with the nectar way down in the cupped end. Bumblebees' tongues are long enough to reach down and suck it up, but honeybees aren't. So if you put a honeybee hive in a blueberry field, they will figure out pretty quickly that they can't get anything if they go through the front door. So they'll start just chewing holes at the base of the flowers, sucking out all the nectar, and not getting any pollination done at all while they're at it. So bless their little honeybee hearts, for blueberries they are worse than useless. Fast forward to another honeybee experience. At one point, still in Florida, I was now working in blueberry breeding, and one of my jobs here was tracking bloom windows for new blueberry varieties. Before we released a new variety for farmers to plant, we have to be able to tell them if it blooms early or late in the season so they can plant accordingly. So I'd go out there, check out the test bushes, and track them through bud break, full bloom, and the beginning of fruit set, and so on. One of the test farms was a patch rented, or something, at a commercial blueberry farm, so it was easy to see how the new varieties stacked up against the established commercial ones. This farm was actually in Georgia, and they had a big old bee yard with 20 or more hives right next to the test blueberry patch, and they were in full bloom, so it was just bees everywhere, and they weren't scary or anything. When there's a lot of flowers, honeybees are like little kids in a candy shop. They're in a really good mood and just focused on the loot. 
You'd have to inhale one to make them mad. That said, there were enough of them flying around that that could happen. The other thing is, bees don't just collect nectar and pollen. Every hive has a few foragers assigned to collecting salt. And it's early spring in Florida, aka your last window to wear sandals before the fire ants come back. And I didn't think this guy was going to put honeybees in his blueberry patch, because that's crazy. So long story short, there was this one bee on salt duty that figured out that my feet were sweaty and salty. So every few minutes she'd come back and crawl around between your toes, because that's where the good stuff is, apparently. And it tickles, but you can't twitch or she's going to light you up. And when they do that, they also tag you with pheromones that tell all the other bees around to sting you, and you're already alone in the middle of a bee cloud on a farm in Georgia's armpit that's 45 minutes away from the nearest bathroom, never mind a clinic. After a minute or two, this bee would fill up and leave, and a couple minutes later, she'd be back, over and over and over. And this whole time, I'm looking at all these flowers with holes chewed in them because the honeybees are robbing them instead of pollinating, and I'm getting bug-toed by this one bee on repeat, and I can't do anything about it, and I'm sweating and just going, why? Why, God, you know honeybees don't work for blueberries. Could you please tell this guy? Sincerely, me. P.S. They may have been there because the beekeeper's paying the farmer to let his bees rest up there and feed on blueberry nectar. That is a deal that can happen sometimes because pollinating gigs can be hard on hives. Definitely didn't do anything for the guy's blueberries, though. So that's honeybees and blueberries. For crops in the melon and squash family, or cucurbits, bumblebees and native squash bees are where it's at. Cucurbits have big, fat, sticky pollen grains that don't stick to honeybees very well, and squash bees' fuzz is built to hold onto it. They also do most of their work before dawn when squash flowers have just opened. Farms do see a lot of work before dawn, but typically during harvest, not during pollination season. There aren't a lot of reasons to go crawling around in a field in bloom just before dawn, so it's really easy to miss that squash bees are working. You come through later in the day, you see honeybees fooling around, and you get a good yield, and you put two and two together, and figure that yield must be because of the bees you saw, but nobody notices the squash bees. These guys are native to the New World, and indigenous peoples grew a lot of squash, so they've been part of American food systems for a very long time. Squash bees are solitary, so they don't sting, and they dig little burrows to nest in right under the squash plants, so how a farm is managed makes a big difference in whether squash bees are around. That's squash bees. Next up, alfalfa leaf cutters are fun. They call this whole group of bees leaf cutters because they take circular pieces out of leaves to build nests with. It looks like something just took a big bite out of the plant. If you want alfalfa seed, you gotta have these guys because alfalfa flowers have a built-in trigger mechanism. When a bee lands on an alfalfa flower, it trips that mechanism and slams the part that holds the pollen up into the bee. Alfalfa leaf cutter bees handle the flowers differently and have a way of dealing with the onslaught. Honeybees do not. So they get sick of getting their face slammed after a few flowers and go on to forage something else. That's alfalfa leaf cutters. Next on our tour of American bees, Maya honeybees. These are actually really different from the old world honeybees. There's a whole group of old world honeybees, quick subnote. There's the European and African subspecies of the western honeybee, Apis mellifera. You've got the eastern honeybee, Apis serrana, and Apis dorsata, the giant honeybee in South and Southeast Asia. The giant honeybee is semi-domesticated and kept in some areas, even though they're crazy aggressive, because they make a ton of honey, and other honeybees have a hard time living in those areas. The Old World honeybees are all cousins, and they all come from the same genus, Apis. They all make those wax cones with the hexagonal cells, and they all sting. The New World honeybees are a whole different group, the Meloponids. The Maya and other indigenous peoples in Central America did beekeeping with these bees. Meliponid bees also make the hexagonal wax cells for their brood, but they make honey in big teardrop-shaped wax pots. 
They don't make a lot of honey, and the wax pots do make the nests a little trippy looking, like it was melted together by Salvador Dali. But it's actually a lot easier to get it out of the nests thanks to these wax pots. You can just poke a hole in the bottom and drain it, and the bees will fix it and fill it back up. It's not this whole ordeal like with European honeybees, where you have to pull the combs out and squash them or centrifuge them to get the honey out. Maya bee honey is more dilute and runnier than what the old world bees make as well. But the biggest difference is these new world honeybees don't sting. They also do something else really interesting. As rainforest natives, these bees actually go all the way up to the tops of the trees to pollinate in the canopy. European honeybees tend to stick closer to the ground. This means the stingless bees are important for forest health, including fruit trees. And Maya farmers in the Yucatan today are picking up raising these bees again. That's great stuff for livelihoods and ecology in the Yucatan. Very important. And it's also something worth watching as in other parts of the world, we start thinking about raising crops and stacked layers indoors. This really disorients apis honeybees since they use sunlight and UV to navigate and like to stick close to the ground. It's possible that Central American bees that are used to navigating up, down, and around through thick, shady rainforests might be able to work better in crops like berries that could be grown in stacks but still need pollination. Maybe. We'll see. A quick detour to Australia, where somehow most of the bees are stingless? Some Australian bees do make honey, and their nests were used by indigenous Australians as food, and some modern beekeepers in Australia have actually started keeping these native bees. Probably the most popular native Australian bee for beekeeping is called the sugar bag bee, or Tetragonula carbonaria. Sugar bag bee honey is light, a little tangy, and you can find it in some specialty stores in Australia. Sugar bag bees are tiny compared to honeybees, and they don't make a lot of honey because they're tropical and don't have to stockpile for the winter. But they're really interesting because humans don't domesticate new livestock very often. It's cool to watch it go down and see what that learning process looks like. Right now, the big struggle is breeding enough queens. Rock on, Australia, for some cool steps in merging the food culture together with the local environment. Our next to last stop on the world native bee tour is North America's blue orchard bee, or Bob, Osmia lignaria. These are little tiny, bright blue solitary bees, and they're starting to get some traction for orchard pollination in California. Honeybees have big stockpiles of honey to live on, so they stay inside when it's cold or rainy out, and a few days of rainy weather during pollination season can mean your whole crop is stunted. But blue orchard bees spend most of their lives as larvae, chowing down on pollen and nectar collected by mom during last year's brief spring flowering season. So during pollination time, adult blue orchard bees go hard. Sun up to sundown, regardless of the weather, blue orchard bees are on. It's pretty simple to host them in the orchard, too. They like to nest in reeds and little holes in wood, and they'll make little walls between each cell in that tube with mud. So they need some mud. And unlike honeybees, they'll only nest close to food. Bobs are definitely different than most orchardists, beekeepers, and other pollination service providers are used to, so the industry is still working out all the bugs and how to plug these guys in. Final entry in alternative bees. These guys won't pollinate your crops, but we're going to talk about them anyway. Remember the Maya bees, those nice little stingless rainforest guys? Like most bees, the Maya bees use pollen as their primary protein source, but they have some close relatives that don't do flowers anymore. They do fruit juice and dead bodies, and they're called vulture bees. And here's where it gets weird. A lot of wasps and hornets eat meat, so that's not crazy, right? Yes, it is, because wasps and hornets don't turn the meat into honey, and vulture bees do. They make honey out of fruit juice and meat. We're going to let the scientists take it from here. <clears throat> The proteic nutrition is based on a paste-like material collected directly from carcasses. The treatment involved in the maturation of the protein source is complex and takes several days. Yummy. With so many bees in the world, why are we so nuts over European honeybees? 
They're just one of thousands of pollinators, and bless their hearts, they're not really that exceptional at it if we're being honest. They used to be the only source of sugar and clean-burning light in the Middle Ages, but that was centuries ago. So our sense of investment in the species isn't about survival or making crops grow or because they're an important part of the ecosystem in North America. Here, they're actually an invasive species that can do a lot of harm to native pollinators through competition and bringing foreign disease. And if that sounds familiar, foreign invaders elbowing out the natives through competition and disease, we may be on the right track to finding out why it is the honeybees have such a tight lock on Anglo-American culture. Honeybees were a really important part of colonizing North America. Back in the day in Europe, bees had first been an important symbol of the Pope and feudalism's social order. A single king bee, they still thought the queen was a king back then, holding all the worker bees in obedience and bringing forth God's gifts of sweetness, light, and mead. They were a useful teaching tool for telling peasants why it was in their best interest to stay in line. So the elites of old Europe really pushed this bees-are-the-ideal-society concept. They really wanted folks to feel like they were worker bees. To make sure everyone was on the same page there, honeybees were used in all kinds of political and religious imagery. As the Reformation came around, honeybees morphed into a symbol of good, industrious Protestant values. The elites at that time really wanted to make sure that their employees, dependents, and townspeople were productive. Like, all the time. So with the Reformation, the social rules changed completely, but the we are cool like the bees meme stuck, and they remained a key symbol and propaganda tool about the social order, even as that social order turned completely on its head from feudalism to a more capitalistic style of life. Which, just for the record, is a really impressive marketing feat to be the symbol of the old ways and just smoothly transition into being the symbol of the new ways. The bee meme took yet another turn with the colonization of North America. The first hives brought over here were very portable strains from Germany, which tend to swarm and split off new hives a lot more readily than other honeybee strains in Europe. That's why they were the easiest to catch and bring over on ships. That also meant they tended to up and swarm away from you whether you wanted them to or not, and honeybees lit off across the continent. It took them a little more time to get through the eastern forests since they're not ideal honeybee habitat, but records show they still consistently stayed about 100 to 200 miles ahead of the advancing front of white farms and as soon as they hit the prairies, they leapt ahead. European colonists had a lot of feelings about the bees' spread, the domestic hum of the hive, their giant broods, constantly swarming and splitting off for new territory where they busily built new homes, felt very relatable to colonists who were building new homes, having ridiculous numbers of children, even for the time period, and outgrowing, overworking, or losing interest in their plots, putting them constantly on the move, and sending off relatives to new sites unseen. And, again, honeybees tended to run one to two hundred miles ahead of where colonists were putting down farms. That did not go unnoticed by the folks already living there. Multiple writers at the time mentioned that Native Americans would note the arrival of honeybees with a kind of, there goes the neighborhood. Honey hunting, or getting honey from feral bee colonies in that one to two hundred mile wide strip where there were bees but no land claims yet, was an important subsistence activity both for Indians who had bees in their woods now and were starting to lose hunting grounds and other traditional resources due to colonization, and for white honey hunters, who tend to show up in records at the time as scruffy folks who couldn't be bothered to hold down a job or a farm. Indians tended to figure since the bees didn't belong to anyone, they were like any other wild resource, fine for foraging. And the white honey hunters figured that since the bees didn't belong to anyone, honey hunters had a legal claim to them. Honey hunting was such an important economic activity on that boundary between white-held and native land 
that debates over who had the right to do honey hunting on unaffiliated land actually played some really key roles in shaping America's mental and later legal framework for land ownership, property in general, and who got to do what in colonial America. Spoiler, it didn't go the Indian's way. Colonists were so emotionally invested in honeybees as little bug versions of themselves that throughout the colonization process, honeybees wound up playing a really key propaganda role in influencing how colonial settlers saw themselves and how they came to believe that it made sense to take legal claim to places that they weren't from and weren't for sale. Okay, well now we've done some science stuff, and we've done some people stuff, and now we're going to smush them together. You might have heard of Colony Collapse Disorder, or CCD. What if I told you it wasn't really a big deal? We'll get into why that's important in a minute, but first let's roll around in some data. Colony Collapse Disorder didn't actually show up out of the blue in the 2000s. Widespread colony collapses, where healthy-looking hives full of brood and food, but the workers are just gone and it's happening everywhere, have totally happened before and we all lived. 53% of colonies died out in Pennsylvania in 1995. A mysterious die-off hit Australia, Mexico, and half the U.S. in 1975. An earlier wave of colony deaths went through California, Louisiana, and Texas in the 60s. The U.S. in 1918 and 1919 the Isle of Wight had three bee epidemics between 1905 and 1919 and lost 90% of their hives in total. Colonies went down to tiny clusters of bees and a queen or nothing at all. In late spring of 1891 and 1896, they called it May disease because it happened in May. A reporter noted abandoned hives full of honey in 1868. Lorenzo Langstroth, granddaddy of modern American beekeeping, found collapsed colonies in 1853. Ireland was a bastion of learning and literacy in the Middle Ages and recorded catastrophic bee colony collapses in 1443, 992, and the year of our Lord 950 AD. There have doubtless been others as well, going even further back, but the people who kept bees and the people who could read and write didn't have a lot of overlap, so we don't have records. Weird random die-offs is something European honeybees just do. The 2007 colony collapse outbreak was just the first time it happened when social media was there to notice. Knowing that colony collapse is a very old foe really helps us sort out what's causing it, and that, folks, is why we keep records. So for a little bit of context, let's talk turnover in normal years. In a good year, the hive turnover is about 20%. About one hive out of five goes kaput per year in normal conditions. Depending on demand for pollination, beekeepers may also choose just not to keep some hives over the winter, which means the mortality stats fluctuate a lot because of deliberate action by beekeepers in response to economic conditions. And then we also get years where a lot more hives go under, not on purpose, about one year out of every 10 throughout recorded history. There's often no cause ever found, it's just chalked up to rough winters or the general stress of moving around. Migratory beekeeping is an ancient occupation. In ancient Rome, traveling beekeepers followed the seasons up and down the Po River, and 2,000 years before that, Migratory beekeepers sailed up and down the Nile, a thousand-mile-long trek from the highlands to the delta and back. Today's food movement really likes to paint moving around as modern and unnatural, and traditional means being sedentary, or as they like to say, rooted. But a mobile lifestyle, traveling huge distances to keep livestock thriving, goes way back before farming was even a twinkle in humanity's eye. Sometimes the animals were cows, goats, and camels, and sometimes they were bees. And while moving can definitely be stressful for hives, it's not required for colony collapse. 
A lot of those historical collapse outbreaks happened in times and places where beekeeping was pretty rooted. Another fun thing about record keeping. If you do it wrong, it leads you in some really weird directions. For example, a lot of the really alarming data out there about how bees are in danger comes from BIP or the Bee Informed Partnership Survey. That's a voluntary survey, and its information overwhelmingly comes from two sources. The small percentage each year of commercial growers who suffer dramatic losses for whatever reason. Since it's a voluntary survey, beekeepers who are doing fine tend to not respond, so this survey doesn't see them. The other source is hobbyists, homeowners, homesteaders, and hipsters doing urban beekeeping. Now, folks can do whatever they want for kicks and grins. That's great. Just be aware that, like anything else, you're not going to be great at it right away. These things take practice. Commercial beekeepers move their hives a lot and stress them, but they also come from long dynasties with lots of experience in interpreting bee behavior. They have good tools, and they know where good food plots are. Beginning beekeepers often don't have these resources, so these folks have a lot more colonies die on them. And urban hives can be especially stressed because of the environment. It's loud, food is sparse, water's kind of dirty, and they can wind up eating a lot of weird things like spilled soda and antifreeze. And making that spilled soda and antifreeze into honey. Urban honey is super sketchy, you guys, by the way. Beginning beekeepers also often don't realize that it's normal for one hive out of five to drop out every year. And a lot of them also came into beekeeping in the first place because of the sense of urgency about saving the bees. So they report every single hive mortality, which, again, they already tend to get more of just out of being new at it. Since the BIP survey gets almost all of its data from these really niche sources, it paints a very different picture than if you actually looked at all the beekeepers. Compare it to a USDA survey, which uses much tighter methodology. Now that we've had about 10 years to fool around with CCD prevention, there seems to be a pretty solid consensus in the scientific and beekeeper communities. There is no one cause of CCD. It seems to come down to general hive stress and disease. Beekeepers who run a tight ship with hive health checks and maintenance tend not to have a lot of losses. Scientists haven't found any one disease or environmental factor that causes CCD, but they do know that hives with several pests and disease problems like varroa mites, nosema, twisted brewing virus, and so on, are more likely to succumb. Pesticides can be a stressor, but they're nowhere near as big a factor as parasites and disease. A really great example of this is Australia. Farmers down under use a lot of neonicotinoid pesticides, but they don't have CCD. Australia does have the natural advantage of being isolated from the rest of the world, and as a result, they just don't have a lot of the diseases that contribute to colony collapse, like varroa mites, these viruses, and nosema. As a scientist, it actually would be nice if we could just pin colony collapse disorder on pesticides, because that would mean, hey, now we know what the problem is, and we can just fix it for good. But... Like most things in biology, straightforward answers are super sexy and usually wrong. Whatever happened back in the aughts to take down hives, it does appear to have wound down. Bee populations are back, and we have a pretty good idea of how to keep hives from collapsing. So, why are we still at red alert on how bees are dying 10 years after it stopped? One reason is native bees are having a lot of trouble for various reasons like habitat loss and competition from domesticated bees but their woes keep getting kind of mixed in and transferred onto honeybees. The other reason I suspect is that honeybees are awesome fundraisers. Earlier we talked about the symbolic and spiritual role that honeybees play in cultures that keep them. Certainly in the West, across thousands of years and several very different phases of cultural rules that are all still considered Western culture, honeybees were always something that people really saw themselves in and projected their social and emotional concerns onto. When we lived in a medieval feudal order, bees showed that the feudal order was ordained by God, and nature itself endorsed it. 
When we lived in a market-oriented Protestant world, bees showed that the Protestant work ethic was ordained by God and nature itself endorsed it. And when we began colonizing new lands, bees showed that colonizing new lands was ordained by God and nature itself endorsed it. When we began to wonder if Western agriculture can have problems, we latched onto bee health issues as a really potent symbol of the things in modern agriculture that we're concerned about. We've used bees for thousands of years as a spiritual touchstone that everyone can get behind, and because they remind us so much of ourselves. And we're so invested in them that anything that happens to bees, we can take really personally. And for that same reason, honeybees are fundraising dynamite, and that's why you hear so much about how they're suffering, even though they're actually doing okay. There's always a weird dynamic as a scientist when non-scientists get really excited about a scientific issue, because the excitement is often like, um, 90% on target? And that 10% that gets lost in translation often winds up being really important. Like, actually the bees that are in trouble are native bees, the honeybees are fine. So you don't want to tell people to not be into the thing that they're into, because that means people are invested in science. That's great. Maybe they'll figure it out eventually. You're going to get there if you keep reading. But you know who doesn't worry about getting it 100% right? Sometimes it's 501c3s that need to make budget. Scientists get all nervous about making sure the message is 100% on point. But there are some nonprofits out there that are like, yeah, let's write that check. You can get some that really understand the importance of meeting people where they're at emotionally and don't worry so much about the details. And that can lead to signal-boosting messages that aren't 100% accurate, and scientists get to be the boring jerkwads who clean up the mess. Bottom line, this stuff happens because the West's relationship with honeybees is very old and very emotional. And like a lot of really emotional relationships, it can get weird. We have a word in English for loving a thing because of the nice things that it gives us, and also because that thing reminds you of yourself. We pronounce it narcissism. So in that unique relationship that Western culture has with honeybees, I think that also plays a little bit of a role. This is no reflection on the bees. This ain't their fault. But I do think recognizing that cultural tendency and where our human flaws come into play helps us sort out our very human motivations and come to a place where we can make clear decisions for 360 degree sustainability instead of just shooting from the hip. I think that one of the biggest challenges that we have in agriculture today is that so many decisions from farm to table are made emotionally. And it's not that feelings are bad. When something doesn't feel right or when something makes us feel good, that's really important. We need to pay attention to those things. What I want to do is build on that because the feelings alone aren't enough. It's so easy to prey on insecurity or fear or the desire for status and recognition or a collective sense of importance or just to feel something and shoot from the hip. The just reacting to emotions can take us into decisions that are not going to satisfy in the long term. When we feel passionate about a problem, that's awesome. And that's a call to make sure that we understand why that problem speaks to us, to learn everything we can about how it works and to be fearless if what we learn shows us that maybe fixing it is going to be more complicated and harder and maybe not going to go down the way we thought it was when we started that learning process with our limited knowledge. That heart plus mind approach works for science, it works for business, it works for parenting, and it works for food systems. To bring it back to bees, we can love and support honeybees without letting the love affair fuzz our judgment on how to build food systems going forward. As consumers and nonprofit donors, we can remember that honeybees are a big part of our food systems, more out of habit and the legacy of colonialism than because they're good at pollination, and sometimes they actually harm native pollinators that we need by hoovering up all the bee food. So choose those donations carefully. 
If we're farmers, we can try a little something new and use bumblebees or native bees and maybe save a few bucks, because now we've got an in-house DIY solve for something we used to spend big money on. And if we're not farmers, but we live near some, maybe this podcast can give us a great idea for a business raising native pollinators. Blue orchard bees are great, but it's hard to find someone who can bring them to your crop. I'm just saying. Well, that's it for today. Special thanks to Joe Ballinger for his bee science. You can find citations for this episode at farmtotabor.com. Special thanks also to Lauren Harris for sound work. Catch us next time for Grappling with Our Ghosts, the land grab that built America's farms and what it means for us today.